back to the beginning. If you'll open your Bibles, and this is going to be tough, I know, for some to find. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's as far as we're going to get this morning. (laughs) I had fully intended to do two verses. This is it. Father, I do ask one more time that you would bless the study of your word and this teaching. And give us insight and understanding. And we thank you so much that you considered it important, not only to speak to us in heart and mind and spirit, but to have these things written down for our consumption, for our digestion, and for our understanding and sanctification, Lord. So I ask, sanctify this morning as we learn more to glorify your name. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Genesis doesn't mean beginning. Now, the word in the Greek, and the reason we call the book Genesis, is we take it from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And so we use that word, Genesis, from the Greek that literally means source or birth, or ancestry. So from a Greek mind, a Western perspective, you'd say this is the book of the ancestry of humanity. It's the book of the, of the source of where we come from. That same word, Genesis, is used to express the arrival of Jesus into the world. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth, the Genesis of Jesus Christ was as follows. So the meaning of the word, again, is not beginning. Now, the Hebrew title of the book is simply the very first word, which is, and you may have heard Mike speak it, Bereshit. Bereshit. Now, Bereshit means in the beginning or at the beginning. So it it is a a book of beginnings. The Greek equivalent, by the way, if we were going to translate Bereshit into Greek, we would say Arche. The Arche, as in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning, the Arche of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Or John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, in the Arche, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, going back into the Hebrew Scriptures, we're going to be spending a whole lot more time understanding Hebrew. And looking at, and listening to, and hearing across however many years God has before us, if He even has years, we're going to be hearing a lot of Hebrew. We've been hearing a lot of Greek the last four or five years we've been in the New Testament. But now it's time to put on our thinking yarmulkes and to be good Hebrews and to listen to these words and to what they really mean. John, John was a good Jewish boy. So when John wrote, in the beginning was the word, he chose the right word in the Greek to amplify or to, to parallel the very first word of the Hebrew Scriptures in the beginning. Bereshit. In the beginning. John says, he was in the beginning with God. The word was. Hold that thought. Why does all this matter? Why does it matter if we call it Genesis, meaning source or or birth, or Bereshit, meaning in the beginning? Well, right out the gate, we recognize this is a book of beginnings. All kinds of beginnings are going to happen in this 50-chapter book, the beginning of the created universe. 
which we begin to touch on even this morning. The beginning of the generations, the genesis, if you will, of mankind. We will read here the beginning and the explanation to gender. The beginning of male and female. And I point out to you, and we'll point out again, according to God, there are only two choices. Male and female. Just making it clear. We will read about in this book, the beginning of marriage. We'll read of the beginning of sin, and the beginning of choice, and the beginning of the gospel is right here. The beginning of faith and and of those who follow after God, who are literally called by His name. We'll read of the beginning of prophecy. Happens very quickly as we get into Genesis. The beginning of the rapture. We'll see the first rapture in this book. We'll read the beginning of corruption. uh, The beginning of sailing. That's, That's here. Noah. So, got that coming. We will see the beginning... Of love. And I I, I pause just to say here that with the beginning of love, you're going to see the first time the word love is used. And not this morning, but down the line a bit. And I want to point out that every now and then we'll stop and say, hey, this is the first time this word is used. It's called the principle of first mention, and it's very important when you go into the scriptures, because as you come to these first uses of words or situations, it helps explain things later in the scripture. You get confused deeper into the prophets or maybe somewhere into the New Testament. You're like, what is he really saying here? If you go back to the first time the word or the thought is used, often you get the answer right there. The principle of first mention and the first mention of love is going to happen down in chapter 22 where God says to Abram, take your son Isaac, your only son whom you love. First use of the word love is that of a father for his son. Interesting. We will read of all kinds of beginnings here. And the bulk of this book speaks of, in fact, more than three-fourths of Genesis details the beginning of Israel. Chapter 12 through 50 is all about that. We we cross a, a vast period of time in the first 11 chapters and then head into this slowdown where God deals with a people. Why is that so important? Because it's through those people that Messiah came into the world. And it's with those people, remarkably, that God is still working to this very day. No wonder Genesis is the most quoted book in the Hebrew or in the uh, New Testament, most quoted Hebrew book. It, it, It is used, spoken of over 200 times, quoted, referred to. And there's more human history in the book of Genesis, the Bereshit, than in any other book in the Bible. We will cover from chapter 1 to chapter 50 some 2,200 years roughly of human history. Chapters 1 through 11, we're going to cover right in that short period of time, 2,000 plus years. And then chapters 12 through 50, I told you, will slow down. And in those chapters, we cover about 193 more years after that. Now, for you note-takers, and hey, we're right at the very beginning, so it's a good time to start taking notes. So if you're a note-taker, you might want to jot down. G. Campbell Morgan offered up a really cool, just three-part outline for the entire book. There are all kinds of outlines and things we could put together, and I thought of a few that were creative and fun. I thought, no, this one's one's best, in my opinion. 
So Morgan said, number one, part one of the outline is Genesis 1 and 2, what he called generation. Generation. Now that's God's creative work that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And we're going to get into that now this morning and over the next couple of weeks. Generation. Genesis 3 through 11, he called degeneration. And that's from the fall to the flood to the foolish failure at Babel. Generation, chapters 1 and 2. Degeneration, chapters 3 through 11. And then finally, chapters 12 through 50, regeneration. Where God begins His program of salvation, not just for a a man or a family or a people, but for the entire world through that people, the regeneration. He begins with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Yaakov, and He ends with Joseph. And the story of Joseph, and that's important because Joseph's story at the end of Genesis is the bridge into Exodus. It's how the Jewish people got down into Egypt in the first place. And how God is faithful to His people, faithful to those who follow after His name. From our limited human perspective, Genesis is actually a pretty good name. So you can keep calling it Genesis. If you want to call it Bereshit, that's great. People will think you're a little strange. Not around here. We'll know. But you go into the workplace and say, yeah, we just started studying Bereshit on Sunday morning. They're going to look at you like, okay. Genesis, birth, origin, ancestry. Again, it's a good title if if you're looking for a sense of how we got started. Where we come from. You know, what, what, what's our source? That's, that's a good title if that's what you're looking for. Because in reading this book, we realize if we simply take it at face value that we are not just children of the unknown universe. Vaguely existing. And the universe isn't stuck to a giant napkin or a, a brain, B-R-A-N-E. It's, it's a concept that's tied up with string theory. If you've ever heard of string theory, some of you are going, <laughs> afraid not. Afraid not, K-N-O-T. Like you take a string and if you mess it up, and you have a afraid not. <laughs> See? See? Yeah. That's the kind of joke you don't tell a friend on Saturday night because they'll laugh in church Sunday morning. Right. We were not seated here by aliens, which to me is one of the more redonkulous concepts that's been thrown out there. Seated by aliens who landed on Mars and shot stuff to Earth and then humanity. It's just, we're not living in the Matrix either, by the way. So unplug. (laughs) That's not what's going on here. This isn't one of multiple parallel universes with an evil doppelganger, Pastor Rick, somewhere else. Or maybe the good Pastor Rick is in another. I don't know. (laughs) Parallel, I mean, these are literal theories that people have put out there. Intelligent people have suggested some of these things. We didn't spontaneously combust into order. Now, now, whatever you think you believe or think you know about how everything began, pause for a moment and consider that thought right there. Pre-existent cells accidentally running into each other, exploding into designed, developed, functional life. That is just lame. And if that's your perspective, forget, no, don't forget me because it's just lame. When was the last time you blew something up and it fell together as a piece of fine art? 
try it. Go ahead and try it sometime. Next 4th of July, pull out your fireworks and see if you can blow something into beauty. <laughs> it's beautiful while it's blowing up. At least some of us think so, those pyromaniacs among us. But something to be to explode and end up as intricately designed, fully functional life. Come on. But, but people believe that. You realize that the first... One of the greatest scientific principles we have, it's called the second law of thermodynamics, says that everything begins with order and descends into chaos. That is a, a proven physical law. Order, chaos comes from order, not the other way around. It doesn't begin with chaos and turn into order. Never works that way. Never has. Science agrees with that and yet puts forth a theory that things just went... Order. And to make the theory work, we add billions of years. Because perhaps across billions of years, order. Maybe it'll eventually happen. When you pause long enough to seriously and rationally think through the theories that are out there, they become remarkably lame. They really do. And no one believes that the universe has just been here forever. I mean, that's been completely disproven. We understand, we recognize that, although theorists continue to add the years. The last time we studied Genesis, through as a book, verse by verse, was 16 years ago. And at that time... Science claimed that the universe was 4.5 billion years old. Today, as of this week, it's apparently grown to 13.787 billion, plus or minus 20 million years, just, you know, for uncertainty. Plus or minus, I mean, this is, you read science books, and, and it's in there. It says that. Plus or minus 20 million years because of uncertainty. And you read that and think, oh yeah, it was 20 million years. That's a huge amount of time. (laughs) Which to me says that's a lot of uncertainty. 13.78 billion years. And I thought about this the other day with the national debt well over $22.5 trillion now. Just wait until the universe reaches the trillions. It has to. Why? Because for to become order, you got to keep adding years just in case to try to cover your basis. But it doesn't work. How old does the world have to be before we get around to the real question behind all the theories? Who lit the fuse? Who managed the chaos? Who unfolded the napkin? <laughs> Who paralleled the universe or wired the matrix or seeded the aliens who seeded the earth? If you want to go with one of these wonky theories, who started it all in the first place? Where did the two cells come from? There's got to be a beginning. There's got to be a who. And I accept the literal biblical account. Now someone might say, well, that's lame. And I'm like, okay, walk with me for a bit. Let's think this through. Let's, let's talk it out. I mean, Mike already shared something stunning about pie and about the orderliness, and you're going to see more of this in a moment, the orderliness and the design 
that is spoken of, and not just spoken of, but proven within the very words of this book. So take your time with that. Want to know where we came from? I can tell you better. I can tell you who we came from. And and this is the whole point. This is the real question. Please dial in with me on this one. What does this tell us about God? That's the point of Bereshit. That's the point of the RK of Genesis. Because the Bible wasn't given to us to master the content. It was given to us that we would become content with the master. That's why we have this. And we as Christians, and let me speak for a moment to those of you who are, we can get sidetracked and think, well, we've got to master this. Well, that's great. And I'm all for Bible study and Bible memorization and Bible understanding. I'm all for it. But mastering this book is not why we study this book. In fact, I believe it was Paul. I'm sure I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but I believe it was Paul who said, yeah, 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love. It's love. Well, that's going to be our focus. Love, God. If you came this morning hoping for a course in apologetics, you're going to be disappointed, I'll tell you right now. We'll look at some things. We'll consider some things as we go. You know, some proofs that are there, that are out there. But that's not the point. It's not why we're studying this. not why we're reading through this. And I appreciate all the emails that have been sent to me over the last month giving all kinds of proofs and verifications of, and scientific evidence of Genesis. It's all great stuff. If I just sat here this morning and started reading the emails, we would be here four and a half hours. And we would cover some great content. I want to cover this content. And I'd like to approach this the way God approaches us. Yes, there are answers in Genesis. As to the how... And the the when and the where and the why of of all these things. Our existence. But Bereshit is about who. The focus must be who. Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. Psalm 40 verse 7. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. John 5 39. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation 19.10. Rick, are we back in the Revelation study? We never left. (laughs) We never left. We're in the same book. It's the same book. As Mike said, this is a circle. We're in the same book. We're just in a different location of the same book, talking about the same God, understanding the same things that have been spoken of across history. So let's begin. And now we see why we're only going to do one verse this morning. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. Stop right there. Bereshit Elohim. Two words. Bereshit Elohim. Genesis begins with God already there. Genesis never attempts to prove God. What book attempts to prove its author? What autobiography needs to? That's what the whole book's about. The book is about God. Pre-existent, absolutely eternal. The author of life doesn't have to prove his existence. Although people say that he should. Well, why doesn't he... In the beginning, God. Well, well, how did God... That's the point. 
He's always been. Always been. I I can't conceive of that. That's because you're not God. In the beginning, God. There are no cosmological, ontological, theological, or philosophical arguments in the beginning. It's just in the beginning, God. Bereshit Elohim. Just God. Just the assumption that He is. Oh, the audacity of such a book. To just assume the existence of God. Later on in chapter 2, we're going to learn His name, Yahweh. I'll point this out to you again, but all through chapter 1, we see Elohim. Every time you see God, we see it's, the, it's Elohim. You get to chapter 2, suddenly it's Yahweh. Why the difference? I'll tell you later. Not this morning. But, since He was there... And we were not. We have to go to him to find out how, when, where, and why. He's the only one who knows. Because he's the one who was present. He was there when it all went down. We have to go to him to find the answers, especially when we start to get full of ourselves. Like Job. And I have great respect for Job, the man, what he went through, how he remained faithful to God. But Job was awfully full of Job. How do you know that? 37 chapters. Where he's defending himself and saying, I need a redeemer, someone who can stand for me in court. I need someone to, to, to you know, help me out here because this can't be. And finally, Job chapter 38, verse 4, God says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? By the way, that chapter begins with God speaking to Job out of the whirlwind. So I imagine the voice was a bit louder. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if if you have understanding, who set its measurements, since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Anyone, show of hands, who was there? Not me. But God, in the beginning, God. And, and you know, we can argue, and Christians do, we can argue over how old or how young the earth is. But again, even with that argument, you have to go into it recognizing we weren't there. At best, we can make educated guesses. I believe God's Word gives us some strength to an educated guess to understanding of a young earth, not an old earth, not a 14 billion year old earth, but a several thousand years old earth. And that's my position. And I believe biblically... Informed suppositions are the wisest, but you have to remember, if it's not clearly delineated in the Bible, the best we can say is it's a supposition. I do believe that the earth is roughly 6,000 years old, maybe a little bit older, and, and you may hear that and go, well, I can't listen to another word from this idiot, because clearly he doesn't understand science. <laughs> I mentioned to you recently, Ricky Gervais was being interviewed about science and, and the Bible, and, and he's, a, he's an avowed atheist. He's a very funny man, but he's an absolute, complete atheist. And he said, you know, in, in a thousand years, all the books of science will still be here. The Bible will not. 
And I thought, first of all, Ricky, in a thousand years, you won't be here. But beyond that, a thousand years ago, what was science saying versus now? Guaranteed, a thousand years from now, should the earth continue to go on, all the science books will find how wrong they were. And the science continually changes and adds to and and subtracts from, and this word is the same. Unchanging. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words will never pass away. So I can promise you one thing. If God allows the, the world to spin on for another thousand years, this word will be there. Let's be sure not to just digitize the whole thing because when electricity goes down, that's gone. Let's, let's keep our Bibles. But even Holy Scripture, again, is not focused on supplying exact timelines. Now, someone would say to me, wait a minute though, Rick, what about the genealogies? Doesn't that give us a sense of the timeline? To which I would respond, yes, but be careful. Because as Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.3, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. That's not empty guesswork. Faith is trust. Trust. What do you mean? Trust that in the beginning, God... See, right out of the gate, you're required to have faith. Right out of the gate, you have to accept or reject this notion, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Why is it that people exclude God and or creation? Why, over the last really couple hundred years, have we seen people running so hard and fast to deny the words of Scripture, and to reject a creator, God. There's a very simple answer for this. No God, no moral accountability. If there's not a God, I can do whatever I want. If there's not a God, I can be as animal in my behavior as I want to. In fact, if there's not a God, I'm just the highest form of animals, so if I want to be animalistic, I can be animalistic. I can be as immoral as I want. Why? No accountability. There's no one above me. I'm the top of the order. Survival of the fittest. No God, no moral accountability. Turn in your Bibles over to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. We're going to cover a couple of books, so go to Romans and stay there, and then we're going to go just to the right of that in just a moment here. But Romans chapter 1, picking up in verse 20, where Paul is writing to the church at Rome consistent with everything we study in the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's something that I can tell you. After 16 years of going verse by verse all the way through every single book of the Bible, what we can say emphatically is that the Bible supports the Bible. That there are not contradictions. That this Word supports this Word. And you can walk through it and we will see that. And feel free to come talk to me if you think, well, but what about this? What about that? I've heard there are contradictions. Well, that's one of the favorite things that the skeptic and the cynic likes to throw out there. All the contradictions in the Bible. And I always ask the question, have you read it? Well, I I, I read that there were. (laughs) Romans chapter 1, picking up in verse 20, says, For since the creation of the world... His, that is God's invisible attributes, 
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. We talked about a few of those already. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, note this, he's going to say three things here. Therefore, number one, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. First thing that foolish thinking does is dishonor you. Removes honor from your house. Dishonor on your family. Dishonor on you. Dishonor on your cow. That's Mushu from Mulan, for those of you fans. Dishonor. And then he continues, for they exchange the truth of God. What truth is that? In the beginning, God. He is. I am, he would say. In the beginning, God. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is forever blessed. Amen. But he goes on, verse 26, For this reason God gave them over, the second giving over, to degrading passions, for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This is not the natural created order, man with woman. Amen. And Paul is very clear about this. And I understand. I get it. Our entire culture is running in the other direction. I ordered a shirt from Hollister. I'm sending it back. For two reasons. Number one, Hollister is for teenagers, and I realize my body no longer works that way. (laughs) Hannah, I am done with slim fit. I like big, baggy flannels. Bring it on, baby. But so, So this shirt's going back. But the other reason I'm sending it back is the packaging on the shirt was was the rainbow colors of the of gay pride. And <laughs> and and with those rainbow colors on the back was written all kinds of things about be yourself, do the, you know, be queer, be this and that and the other. And I'm like, this is just a, a clothing company. And they're declaring something that is in contradiction to the word of God. Well, what does God's word say? I'm not trying to be offensive. I understand people are confused. I understand people are upset. I understand that there are people are trying to figure things out, but they're running away from the truth of God's word to get there. When God has laid it out for us, a way that we can find contentment with our master. And so Paul says, this is what this is just what happens. It begins with you deny God, you start to become dishonored in yourself, and dishonor leans to degradation. You, be, you start to function at a lower level. You're, you're degraded in your behavior. And then he goes on to say, and there's a third thing to this, verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, number three, to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil and full of envy and murder and strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. They are slanderers. Now stop right there. He is yet to use the word homosexual. 
Note what happens when we deny God and are dishonored and degraded and depraved. All these other things. Greed. Do you have a problem with greed? Maybe it's because you're denying God in your finances. What about gossip? Are you a gossip? Maybe it's because you're denying God in the kindness that you show to other people. It's all the same sin nature that's messing things up here. And then he goes on and says, verse 30, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. See, there's a breakdown right there. When you can't be obedient to father, how can you be obedient to dad or mom? Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Why? Because where there's no higher authority, where there is no God, there's no moral accountability. So I don't have to be loving. I don't have to be trustworthy. Hey, it's whatever works best for me. I don't have to care about anyone. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but, and this is a major mark on the American church, they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I can't just say it's all right and go with the flow. I can't do it. All of this is due to rejecting the moral accountability which begins in the beginning God. You start there. Okay, that being the case, in the beginning God, I'm going to follow through with everything else He has to say because I'm accountable to Him. And I will become content with my Master again. It doesn't take long for this falling apart to happen, dishonor to degradation, to, to depravity. It doesn't take long. We see it exploding on the scene and by six chapters into the story of Genesis, ten generations in from creation, we see that the vast majority of people have denied God and have fallen into deep degradation and depravity, such that only eight people are left who are even worthy of getting on the boat. The entire world. And I'll show this to you when we get to Genesis 6, but the entire world was likely highly populated. Only just a handful of people in the Middle East at that point. Look at those things. What does God then do with our rebellion? Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. And we're still in the beginning with God. What does He do with our rebellion? 2 Corinthians, just two books to the right of Romans. Chapter 5, verse 18, which tells us, Now all things are from God. If your Bible says all these things and has these in italics, these is not there in the Greek language. It's not just that Paul is referring to what he said already in this chapter. What Paul is saying is, all things are from God. Which is akin to saying, in the beginning, God. Right? All things are from God. Who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And by the way, that's the answer to Romans 1. The answer to Romans 1 is not becoming hateful toward the homosexual. 
The answer to Romans 1 is not as Christians shunning all of the sinful world. Because if we do that, none of us should be here this morning. The answer to Romans 1 is 2 Corinthians 5, which says, I am here as a minister of reconciliation. I am here to go to you with the truth of God's love for you and His compassion for you and His willingness to go so far that He will pour out His blood to cleanse you of your sin so that you can belong to Him again. Reconciled. That's what God does. Why are you telling us this, Rick, in a study of Genesis? Because you need to understand that part of the heart of God right out the gate. God's a reconciler. In the beginning, God, and as we move on into the creation, He created out of and for love and a desire that His creation would respond to Him. Be in a relationship with Him. And verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5 says, He made Him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. All things are from God. All things are from God. Who then desires to reconcile, once we've messed it up, all things back to Himself again. And it's good to know that going in. Alright, so back to Genesis 1. So, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Elohim is the name given. Elohim is the plural form. You Bible students know this. Elohim is the plural for God. Elohim means three or more. In the language, in the Hebrew, El is just one. Elah is a plural. There's two. And then you get to Elohim, and it must be three or more. It speaks of three or more. And the Bible teaches us that all three persons of God, one God, unique, has three distinct persons within the one, and all three are present in the beginning. So to say, in the beginning, Elohim, is to say, in the beginning, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, Yahweh. In the beginning, Yeshua. And in the beginning, the Spirit of God. Now there's a a really cool couple of Commentaries, and I'll, I'll recommend them to you, but, but with some thinking, they're written by Dennis Prager. I don't know if you've heard of Dennis Prager. He's a radio personality, a Jewish man, Orthodox Jew, extremely intelligent. man's brilliant. And I used to listen to his radio show down in Southern California when we lived there. I'd, I'd be driving because that's all you do in Southern California. So you'd listen to the radio and you drive places, you know. 45 minutes in traffic. And I listened to Prager's show, and, and he's just a brilliant guy, and I love to listen to him. He's an Orthodox Jew. He has great respect for Christianity, but doesn't believe in Jesus. And he has two commentaries out right now, one on Exodus, that was the first one he wrote, and the second one is on Genesis. And I have them both, and they're fascinating to read. And again, he's a brilliant man. But no going in that he doesn't believe in Jesus. And you always need to know what the commentary writer believes before you start reading the commentary. Okay, I, I suggest just read the Bible and you're going to be good. But, but these are good books. They're fascinating, interesting to read. And, and Prager says in his rational Bible commentary on Genesis, he says, quote, Elohim, note this, Elohim is a plural noun. The Torah says Elohim created using the singular form of the Hebrew verb create. Now this is bad Hebrew. Elohim is a plural noun followed by a singular verb. That, if it's a plural noun, it should be a plural verb. But it's not. 
Elohim, in the plural, created. And, and that word created, again, is singular. And he writes, if Elohim were plural, it would utilize the plural of the verb. The verb, therefore, tells us God is a singular entity. Created is singular. So that means that the noun must be singular, but it's written in the plural form. That's very confusing. Dennis Prager says, no, not confusing. He says English provides an example. The word fish. By the way, he's fishing here. It can be used both in the singular and the plural, true enough. And only the verb tells us whether fish is singular or plural. The fish swim means fish is plural. The fish swims means fish is singular. And he's right. That, that's true in the English language and all due respect. But this singular plurality has a better explanation in Torah itself. All Dennis Prager needs to do is get all the way over to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is our Elohim, plurality. The Lord is one. Yahweh is Elohim. Yahweh is Akkad. One. But what's amazing is the word Akkad in the Hebrew is a unified plurality of oneness. It's a very unique word. It, by the way, is the same word that is used to describe what happens in marriage. If you look at Genesis 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become echad. One. They shall become one. The two become one. Mysteriously, wonderfully, amazingly. The two become one. That word echad, that's, that's the grand design. That's the divine design for marriage because it portrays the divinity himself that the three are one. That the three, Elohim, are Akkad, a unified plurality of absolute oneness. And so we read Genesis 1, verse 1, In the beginning, God, Bereshit, Elohim, bara, created. Bereshit, Elohim, bara, in the beginning, God created. Isaiah 48, verse 13. Reads, surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens, and when I called to them, they stand together. Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 12, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding, he has stretched out the heavens. And by the way, speaking of wisdom, let me just read this to you. Note this, you can look at it perhaps later. Proverbs chapter 8 speaks of the wisdom of God, and in verse 22 says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way, that is wisdom, before His works of old. From everlasting I was established from the beginning and from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. Wisdom. 
And when He inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, I was there. When He made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when He set the sea, or for the sea its boundary, so that the water would not transgress His command. When He marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside Him as a master workman, and I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him, rejoicing in the world, His earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. And have you ever thought that? Ever felt that? If you're into art, perhaps you're drawing or painting, and as you're drawing or painting, you, you just you feel this kind of rejoicing, this elation in what is happening before you. If you're writing a song, you just feel this sense of joy that, wow, this is coming together, this is really cool. And that's God at creation. That His wisdom was rejoicing as He created the world. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, For by Him all things were created in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And of course, Paul is talking about Jesus, who has created all things. Why? Because in the beginning, Elohim, Father, Son, and Spirit, all present, created bara. Bara. That word bara is to create or to make something from nothing. It's a very distinct Hebrew word, bara. Something from nothing. And by the way, Moses knew what he was writing. And I just throw that one in there for you who are wondering who penned Genesis. Who's the one who wrote down? God's the author, but who had the pen? And I believe it was Moses who wrote the first five books, Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all written by Moses. And I'll explain why at another time. So if you just hear me throw out Moses' name in the writing of this, I'll show you why eventually. But verse 7, note what he says. He says, God made the expanse, some of your translations say the firmament, and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. But note that in verse 7, God made. God made. The word made is a different word. It's not bara. It's ya'as from, from asa. Now, you don't have to remember that if you don't want to. Asa literally is the Hebrew word that means to fashion something from something. That's what we do. We asa. Anything that we make, anything that we create, whether artistically or functionally, you know, if if you put things together, maybe if you're a builder or an architect, you are a saw. You're taking something that already exists and you're making something out of it. And that word is a very clear word in the Hebrew. But verse 1 does not say that God made something from something. It says God borrowed. He didn't borrow. Make sure there's a clear distinction. God didn't borrow. Okay, we got some mess over here. Let's make something out of this. That's what we do. God created, bara something from nothing. Note this, by the way. The word bara, create something from nothing, is used three times in Genesis chapter 1. Three times. In verse 1, in the beginning, God created. That's, that's everything that has come into being, came into being, From nothing. God made something from nothing. Well, how is that possible? He's God, you're not. Don't worry about it. The focus there, though, is the entirety of created 
life in the universe. God created everything that we see came from originally Him generating it. Him creating it something from nothing. And then down in verse 21, it tells us again, next time we see the word bara, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves. So now the focus is not the entire created universe, but every living creature. If there's life, God created it from nothing. He didn't borrow to make life. And then ultimately down in verse 27, God created man. And note this, in His own image, in the image of God, He created Him, male and female, He created them. That's the answer to the gender question. Male and female. Man. Man is Adam. The name, the word Adam. And it speaks here in Genesis chapter 1 of both male and female, of both men and women. We're all, he created man. Man isn't a chauvinistic term, friends. In the Bible, man simply speaks of who we are. Man and woman, male and female, he created them. But the focus here, note that, is mankind. And in each and every case, whether it's the universe, every living creature, and mankind, male and female themselves, God did not borrow from previous creation. God borrowed. He created something from nothing. Anyone want to challenge me on that? Because you can. Someone might say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor. What about the dust and the curse? Well, let's look at that, because I knew someone would bring it up. Chapter 2. <laughs> chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, Note this, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Oops. If he borrowed man, if he created man from nothing, and then we get to verse 7 of chapter 2, no, he used the dust. That's, that's that other word. That's asa. He used something and then created man, right? Same thing with woman. She became, she, you know, from the rib. We'll talk about the whole rib issue. <laughs> dust and rib. I'll tell you what, if it's between dust and a rib, I'd rather come from a rib. Just saying. Just sounds a little more meaty. <laughs> Anyway, there's something here, right? In verse 7, skip on over to chapter 3, verse 19, in the midst of the curse, where God Himself says, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Something from something. So how can Moses then say, how can the Bible declare, in the beginning God bara something from nothing? How can it say that and not be a contradiction? Listen. <laughs> something from something. From dust you were taken, and to dust you shall return. And you hear that sometimes in the memorial or funeral service, from dust to dust. All we are is dust in the wind. Indeed. Indeed, God used dust to create flesh. Where did our spirits come from? Something from nothing. God created life. Yeah, He used the dust for these frames, these shells, these bodies. That was something from something. But how did these bodies come to life? You can look at the body of someone who has passed away, lying in a coffin, and you recognize immediately that's a shell of the person. They're not really there. It's one of the most stunning things I've told you before, back when I was in the ninth grade. 
going to a viewing of a grandmother who I dearly loved. Still think about her to this day. Amazing woman of God. Going to the viewing and walking in there holding my mom's hand thinking, because I'd, I'd seen the horror movies. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if she was going to sit up. And I, ah! I remember walking in there and walking alongside the open casket and I looked at her and I, it was the first time I'd ever seen someone deceased. And I, I looked again, I looked at my mother and I, I just went, she's not here. I don't know what I thought I'd expect. I thought I'd expect to see her like I would see her asleep. I'd walked into her room before when she was asleep. And she was right there. She wasn't here. Just a shell. Just It was just something from something, dust to dust. But the spirit was not there. Her spirit had already departed. And this is what I'm saying to you, that our spirits are something from nothing. Are, they're something from God Himself. Something real and actual and eternal. And by the way, God does that with each and every conception. Gives spirit. Here's the problem with the abortion debate. Here's the problem with the pro-choice issue. With people saying, well, life doesn't begin until birth. When does God drop the spirit into the person? I'll tell you honestly, I, I don't know. I have an assumption. My assumption is at conception. Right then... The person is not only the full entire DNA strand is there, but the spirit is dropped in. That, that's what I believe. I can't prove that. Neither can the pro-choice abortionist. You cannot prove that life doesn't begin until birth or, or until a certain point. You have no idea when God drops the spirit of the child into the child. You don't know. You want to mess with that? I don't. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we have Eve about to give birth for the first time, and I'm sure that was a joy. (laughs) The man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the Lord, or with the help of the Lord. And that's a fascinating verse we'll look at when we get to chapter 4, Lord willing. But Eve even recognizes God had a hand in this. This, This birth, this child, this is because God did something from nothing and brought forth life. Job 33 verse 4 says, The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Psalm 139 verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well that God created. He gave life. And so the Spirit, that's something from nothing. That's bara. And without God doing that, then even the asa, the dust to, to dust, even the forming man out of the dust, it would be nothing but an empty, dead shell. But God created. In the beginning, God created. By the way, God is masculine. I mean, I'm already, I'm sure I've offended someone already. Let's just go all the way. <laughs> God is masculine. Understand there is no goddess. There's no mother of God. There are no feminine verb forms even connected to Elohim. Hebrew verbs are gender specific. Which means they must agree with the noun to which they refer. And both Elohim 
and created here in verse 1 are in the masculine form. Elohim is masculine. Created is also masculine, consistent with the nature of God. And I know some would say that's just because the Bible is patriarchal, macho, and and chauvinistic. And, And some believe that. Some will look at God and say, that's just a chauvinistic view of patriarchal man, of man lording it over women. Whoa. Are you so sure? Our society, if not our entire world, is on a collision course with God regarding the significance of created gender. See, the male-female gender debate that's raging in our country, people have missed the most fundamental question, why is it only male and female? Why can't it be all these other things? Boil it all down and understand there is incredible significance to male and female as our gender. That you are one or the other And it's important because it affects everything, not just how you feel about yourself. What's the problem? Dennis Prager says this, and this is quite wise. Quoting then-Senator Barack Obama in 2008. Listen to this. Children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. Children without a father. That is a male father figure in the home. And you know what? People can argue that and say, well, I just don't think that's true. It doesn't matter if you think it's true. Those are the statistics. And Obama's the one who shared them. And the Journal of Research on Adolescence reported that, quote, youths in father-only households, note this, in father-only households displayed no difference in the rate of incarceration from that of children coming from two-parent households. What does that tell you? There's something incredibly significant about a man. And I can say that in a culture that is doing everything it can to denigrate man. To denigrate masculinity. I'm not talking about chauvinism. I'm not talking about men lording it over women, which I completely disagree with. I'm talking about the position of a man in our culture. And men, embrace your masculinity. You are created to be sons and fathers and brothers, to be men. So be men and don't be ashamed of that. No matter what the world is saying, God created you as a man. And ladies, God created you as a woman. Embrace that, who you are, and recognize what God has done. Understand. Galatians 4, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We need a Father. And by the way, for those of you raised by a single mother, or raised without a father, or raised with a distant or even abusive father, you have a Father. You have not just a father, but a father you can call, according to the Bible, Abba, which is the most childlike, joyful statement of what little kids in Israel call their dads. They run around Jerusalem going, Abba, Abba, and I love it. Because that's what I can call my father. There are times where my heart just needs to say, Abba, Daddy, I, I need you, because that's how He created me. Sons and daughters, that's how He created us to need and to love our Father. And we're going to talk more about this. 
But understand that when we try to create God in our image, that image will change with every whim of culture. That image will never be consistent. What culture says this year is not what culture said 40 years ago. And it's not what culture is going to say in 40 years, should God be patient with us, and I'm not sure how much longer He will be. I know I'm not. In the beginning, God created Bara. You see why we're still in verse 1. Once we accept this fundamental premise, the rest of the Bible becomes then easy to receive and understand. If you can start by accepting in the beginning God created. It is such a fundamental and foundational verse to our faith, to our ability to trust in Him. But if you fight God on verse 1, if you push back on this singular opening verse of the Bible, if you reject Him in the beginning, you will find the entire Bible a real struggle. Difficult to accept or receive or believe. So, so someone might say, so what you're saying is I have to first believe in God to get it? Ultimately, yes. Ultimately, yes. However, however, I want to say this. If you don't accept Genesis 1-1 as truth just yet... It's worth the struggle. So do yourself a favor and stick with this. And walk this out further. Because this entire book is about God revealing Himself to you. It's what He's doing in it. So while faith will make it all a whole lot easier to flow through and rejoice in and enjoy and understand, you know, when faith comes, the veil is lifted. You can still kind of see through the veil. So... So keep looking and keep struggling and stay with this. Let God reveal God to you. And again, because He's the point of the whole thing. So, without any attempt to prove or explain Himself, we immediately meet God in the beginning. Something from nothing. God creating. I'm not saying God was something from nothing. God has always been something. Even before there was nothing. (laughs) God has always been, but in the beginning God created. And by the way, Isaiah tells us He's going to bara, He's going to create something from nothing again. Isaiah 65, 17, Behold, I create, I bara new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Alright, stick with me. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We got through the whole first verse, deep breath. <sighs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ancient scholars in India believed that the world was not only flat, but balanced on the backs of a herd of giant elephants. Serious. That's that's what people once believed. In the South Seas, they believed it was on the backs, balanced on the backs of giant tortoises. People carried that as belief. Thousands of years later, the Greeks supposed that Atlas bore the weight of the world on his broad shoulders. And no one, but no one believed, especially when it was written, that our planet was a ball hanging in the sky. Come on. I mean, that's just, that's crazy, right? Psalm 104, verse 1. 
3,000 years ago, David wrote, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. And Isaiah 40.22, It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. Hey, guess what? The earth is round. It was never flat. He sits above the circle of the earth. Isaiah said that 2,700 years ago, long before science figured it out. Or someone rocketed up into the heavens to look back and go, oh, it is round. (laughs) Isaiah declared it. He sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Job 26, verse 7, He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. And by the way, that biblical description of stretched heavens is scientifically spot on. For those who research these things, what happens when you stretch a rubber band? Not when you let go, but when you stretch it. Do you know what's happening there? It's building up energy. If you just let it lie there, nothing's happening. You start to stretch it, and energy is being developed, and then you let it go and snap, right? In the same way science knows, the formation of a single star requires immense energy, as in the stretching of the heavens. That to create a single star, much less all the stars of the galaxies of the universe required immense massive energy and such massive energy is inconsistent with all evolutionary models. Doesn't fit evolution. Fits creation beautifully. And it's described as a stretching of the heavens in the Bible. One of the questions, by the way, speaking of the heavens, that that the skeptics and skeptical scientists like to ask is why are the heavens so vast? If God created, you know, the Genesis account, if that's all true, a puny man on puny earth in the midst of all of this vastness, why? What sense is there to that? Physicist and skeptic Victor Stanger said, said, excuse me, if God created the universe as a special place for humanity, he seems to have wasted an awfully large amount of space where humanity will never make an appearance. You're right. He's absolutely right. Here's the flaw in the argument. It's man-centered. The argument is man-centered. And that's always a flaw. When I get man-centered, it's a flaw. When I get self-centered, self-focused, I'm going to have some trouble. There's always a flaw in that kind of thinking. When we get self-centered, we lose perspective. And we lose our place. And especially, we lose praise. Listen. God didn't create the heavens just to satisfy our curiosity. No, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. That's why the heavens are there. They declare His glory. It's almost as if God could do no less when He borrowed, when He created. He could do no less than something massive and amazing. Though He plopped us on this tiny little planet in the midst and the universe is vast, it's incredible, it's overwhelming. Because God is vast and incredible and overwhelming. It is there to the glory of God. And their expanse, Psalm 19 says, is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. 
And then he rethinks and he goes, well, there is no speech and there are no words and their voice is not heard, but their line, that is their sound, has gone out through all the earth and their utterance to the end of the world. Why the vast universe? It goes to the glory of God. That's why it's there. That's why God created the heavens. Look, I'm going to give you a sense. Like Paul said in Romans 1, all things that have been made have been made so that we're without excuse. Look at the heavens. You're going to tell me that came from two cells 13.787 billion years ago plus or minus 20 million years. Come let us reason together. This speaks of the glory of God. And as I told you, this book is all about Him. I I want to real fast punch into verse 2. Just punch into it. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Which is a very interesting follow-up to verse 1 because all of a sudden there's creation and then there's cancellation. There's form followed by formlessness. In the beginning God created. There's order followed by chaos. What's going on here? Come back on Wednesday night. Because we're going to talk about it and look at it and consider why, what's the difference between verses 1 and verse 2. But understand, please, I just wanted to say this about the second verse. If there's confusion, if there's disorder, if there's chaos, that's on us. We do that. We make chaos from order. He is a God of order. He is a God of of creation. He is a God of perfection. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Check this out. What is the number of completion in the Bible? Seven. Very good. Seven. In Genesis 1, there are seven days. Huh. Don't stop there. The Hebrew word for God, Elohim, shows up 35 times. 35 times. 5 times 7. The word earth appears here 21 times. 3 times 7. Heavens and the expanse, or the firmament, show up together 21 times. 3 times 7. We read the command in the Hebrew form, let us. Let us create man in our image. Let us. We read that command 7 times. Light and day appear seven times in the first paragraph alone. Light shows up by itself seven times in the fourth paragraph where it's described. It is good appears seven times. Verse 1 contains exactly seven words in the Hebrew. Verse 2 contains exactly 14 words in the Hebrew. Seven times two. Verse 2. And there are seven paragraphs... In Genesis 1 through 2, verse 3. And 1 through 2, verse 3, that's the natural break in the Hebrew. We start chapter 2 with verse 1, but actually you go through verse 3 and and chapter 2, verse 4 starts the next section. So in this opening section of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, there are exactly seven paragraphs. And the seventh paragraph contains three sentences, each with seven words around the same central phrase, the seventh day, totaling 35 words. And that's all just in Genesis 1 and into 2, verse 3. 
show me another book claiming to be of divine origin that bears the signature of symmetry like the Bible does. Such order in presentation. Behind the scenes, things you wouldn't even think about while you're just reading it through. Just read it through, it's orderly enough. But how it's constructed, how it's put together. And people love to look back at characters like Moses 3,000, 4,000 years ago. And go, wow, you know, they didn't know what we know today. He knew something. Or, or, he was led by the divine spirit of God to write this down. And was able to write things he could not possibly have constructed. It is impossible that one human being could work so beautifully and symmetrically all these sevens into the beginning of Scripture, knowing ultimately that seven was going to be a big deal in the Bible. That it was going to speak of completion and per- per- perfection. How did no- Moses know that? How did he know how this would all play out? My friends... There is a divine signature here. A signature of God Himself. And I add to this, do you think that God has miscalculated something in your life? The God who can calculate these things, and we're going to get blown away as we go forward. Do you think God has just not added things up right for you personally? Well, He missed that one clearly, or He made this... God is the whole point after all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to end with this. Yes, I am going to end. Where is Jesus in all of this? Because Jesus is the point. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. It is these that speak about me. Jesus is the focus. He's the the central point of all prophecy. So where's Jesus in all this? Again, John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. And we know down in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's Jesus. In the beginning, with God, part of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Elohim, all together in the beginning, Bereshit Elohim. In the beginning, God. But listen, Bereshit. Bereshit is a conjunction of two words in the Hebrew, written as one, Be and Rashit. Be is in the or at the, and then Rashit, beginning. Rashit. Rashit is also the name of a Jewish feast. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the reshit of your harvest to the priest. The reshit is the first fruits. The feast of first fruits, reshit. It happens annually three days following Passover. Three days after Passover, the feast of first fruits, the day of Christ's resurrection. Rashid, the beginning, my friends, the day of his resurrection was the beginning of our eternal life. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. A single verse. 
(laughs) And it's remarkable how much you have already spoken. And how much is said. Lord, I, I ask You, because I know that there's chaos in many of our lives, but You are the One who began our lives with order and creation and completion. You're the one who says that that you will bring us to completion, that there will be that day when you bring all things together and we are made complete in you and by you and through you. But it's it's the in-between that gets us messed up, Lord. It's the chaos that we create. It's the chaos sometimes we we find ourselves in. It's the confusion that, that can surround us in this world. So we appeal this morning to the God who created with perfect order. We appeal to You, Lord, saying, make order out of our chaos. Lord, sanctify us of the things that are confusing. And draw us near to You in faith. And I I ask, Father, as we continue on into Genesis, I pray for this singular blessing that for all the information and all the, the people that we'll run into and all of the stories, that we will not miss You. Help us to see You, God. To understand You, Elohim. To worship You, Yahweh and Yeshua, Spirit of the living God. To set our hearts on knowing You and Your character and Your nature and And what You're all about for the sake of Your glory. So that ultimately all the chaos becomes order in our worship. Father, thank You for Your Word to us this morning. And I pray bless the ears of all who hear. And each of our hearts, may Your Word take root. In Jesus' name. Amen. And if your life is disorderly or chaotic he's the answer god is the answer he would say to you this morning and he has said again and again come to me all who are weak and heavy laden i'll give you rest i'll give you peace remember it was on the seventh day that he rested because everything was in order so let him bring order back into your life if you need to pray this morning if you just need to cry out to the father come and come and do so we'll be standing up here you can pray with any one of us And if you've never given your heart to Jesus, if you've never just trusted Him as Lord and Savior, come and do that. If you've never been baptized, you can do that this morning as well. If you're just desiring more of the outpouring of His Spirit in your life, just come and pray. Let's stand together, worship Him, and come to our God.